The Guardian. Tech Weekly with Jemima Kish. Welcome to an uncharacteristically classy edition of the Tech Weekly podcast, brought to you from the Royal Opera House in London's Covent Garden. The rich tapestry of sound effects you can hear behind me are not coming from producer Scott and the Guardian's shoebox of sound effects, but are actually the Royal Opera House crew setting up for Puccini's Il Tritico tonight. It's one year since our special podcast exploring the BBC's extensive archive and the complex issues involved in digitising them. But what about cultural organisations without the BBC's engineering heritage and expertise? In this programme we'll be learning about the archives of the Royal Opera House and how the organisation is tackling digitisation, together with the work the Opera House and the British Library has been doing to share expertise. As with much in the UK, all roads lead to the BBC which has been central to the collaborative, cross-organisational digital public space project. The core idea about the digital public space is, is to acknowledge the fact that once you can assume that people are online, it's beginning to become a reasonable assumption. Then you can ask the question about how we engage with each other, how we share ideas, how culture is expressed, and how cultural artefacts, programmes, whatever, are made use of, how people engage with them. There should be something that unifies all of this. There should be some idea that binds us all together that allows us to take things other people have created, that organisations have created, and allow people to have access to it, to work with it, to engage with it. That's the driving issue. If we are going to be living in a digital culture, then analogue material which is left behind will be lost, it will be forgotten. We'll also be looking at the bigger picture across Europe and the future challenges for digitising our cultural heritage. We've got 19 million items, but only 3% of that content is audiovisual content. It really shows up the gaps in our digital cultural heritage. Ladies and gentlemen, please find your seat and do make sure your mobiles are switched off during the performance. This is Tech Weekly from The Guardian. In the background, you can hear some doors being lowered from the ceiling and scenery being dropped into place. Um, of a very large, beautifully mint green convent with some skylights. Welcome to Francesca Frankie, Head of Collections, and Rob Gregg, CTO from the Royal Opera House. We're also joined by Richard Ramft, who is Head of Sound and Vision at the British Library, and you can probably hear some scenery being shifted into place beside us. Francesca, can you tell us a bit about the scale and the scope of the Royal Opera House archives? What, what kind of material do you have in there? Well, the aim of the collections are to cover the history of the three theatres that have stood on the Covent Garden site since 1732. Um, But because we had two fires in 1808 and 1856, some of the earlier material has been lost or dispersed. But certainly from the mid-19th century, when the second theatre became an opera house, we have very comprehensive records. And they cover the whole range of activities that take place in the theatre. So it covers business records, all the kind of administrative records that you'd expect to find, board minutes, contract files, correspondence, 
production records, how the um, productions get onto the stage, so the designs, the working drawings from the different technical and production departments, the costumes themselves, um, audiovisual material, uh, pieces of architectural salvage from the uh, second and third theatre, um, furniture, so a huge range of material. Richard, how does this compare to the British Library's collection in terms of the type of content. I'm not sure you have any architectural salvage at the British Library, do you? But can, can you describe um, what you've got in, in your archives now? Well, we do even have a few artefacts uh, from the Indra Office collection. There's a few sort of Viceroy's chairs and things like that. Um, no, the, the British Library's sort of strap line is the world's knowledge, so we have huge amounts of content, 150 million items, representing um, sort of written and recorded thought and culture over the centuries, so ranging from manuscripts and maps uh, to books, periodicals and sound recordings and some video recordings. The British Library is... Um is it much more forward-facing and outward-facing because the nature of, of the material that you have there is that it is designed to be indexed and archived and accessible to people already? I mean, has it really been that much of a jump in digitising all of this content? It has made a few difference, um, but it's true. Our whole purpose is to provide a service to users, which we have been doing uh, for many years. And, of course, you can access most of the collection, 150 million items, uh, by coming into London and consulting them in the reading rooms. Um, the great thing with, about digitisation is it enabled us to extend that service uh, beyond the confines of the physical building, um, you know, nationwide and worldwide. Uh, and so that really transforms the use. But, of course, the other context is it enables you to um, share materials with other cultural organisations online uh, in, in a way that's just not possible when everything's physically separated in different locations. Francesca, how did you go about beginning to digitise your archive when, when clearly um, making content digital and putting it online is not something that's core to what the Royal Opera House does? Well, we were very fortunate in receiving core funding from the organisation who felt that it was important to start the process of making this material more widely available. So the work of, of making the material available through digital media has, is seen as core to the work of the collections department now. Richard, you have been working um, with, with other organisations, as, as you just um, started to tell us. So, so um, how did these collaborations come about and who have you been working with? We've been working with another, uh, a number of organisations, particularly in the field I work in, uh, which is primarily audiovisual material. Uh, there is a group of cultural organisations, national libraries, museums, called the UK Sound and Collection Group, uh, which includes um, also the British Film Institute and the BBC. Both the British Film Institute, the BFI, and ourselves, the British Library, have been talking together about how we can really bring all our archives together. And, of course, the BBC's got a huge archive of basically the, the nation's recorded memory from the 20th century onwards. Um, and the British Library and British uh, Film Institute have got this sort of equivalent. So we started talking about issues about technology platforms, um, rights issues, um, how can we bring our different kind of catalogues together, because everything's described in different ways. Uh, so there's lots of challenges to be addressed. Has one of those challenges been 
the nature of an institution in that um, it can be a little bit hard to collaborate and work with other organisations or has actually that process of collaborating and, and opening out your processes um, and I suppose your, your kind of secret source, your secret content, how's that process been for the, for the British Library? I think it's worked pretty well. We, we recognise, I mean, the library has about 150 million items, only a tiny fraction of that has been digitised. Uh, it's impossible for us to just do this on our own, given our resources, so we really have to collaborate with other cultural sector organisations and with the private sector. We've all got the similar goals now. Rob, what is the next phase for the Royal Opera House in its collaboration both with other organisations through the digital public space and for the, for the work that you're doing on your own archives? We recognise that the, the collection that we have is incredibly rich and, and goes back a long way and um, it can do a lot of things for us. You know, we can drive traffic to our website, we can reach audiences beyond London through the rest of the UK but also through the rest of the world and I think if we can create interactions between the different content, um, say something exists at the British Library, might have a relationship with something that exists in our own collection um, then it becomes interesting and then, then we can draw people back to what we're about which is opera and ballet These are tough times for arts organisations though I mean, is there any potential here for for increasing revenue, for making money, for commercial reuse of, of your content? Or, or is this much more about opening resources that are, I suppose, owned by the public that can be used uh, non-commercially? Of course. You know, the Royal Opera House is, like many of the organisations that are involved in this project, is a not-for-profit organisation. We are a charity. There are a number of ways that this, this content can help. One of them is we, we licence um, some of the content, you know, we've done work already where we've, we've created calendars and that, that sort of direct commercial content, but also driving traffic. If we can drive more people to, to our website, um, we can then turn that into something that could be potentially monetized. You know, if, if someone engages with us that hasn't engaged with us before, that's building our audience. Um, and if we can increase that activity, then, then there's a potential for someone to purchase a ticket, maybe, engage in um, a video on demand, engage in our cinema programme, you know, that, that sort of thing. Richard, what's next for the British Library? There's obviously a very big schedule of work um, to do and you have a, a vast, vast um, archive of, of material that you'll be digitising. What's on your to-do list? Well, we, we do have a lot more to digitise. Um, I mean, across the library, we are engaged in various projects digitising. For example, we have a, a deal with Google to digitise quarter of a million out of copyright books uh, and that will be made available freely online so that sort of material could for example find its way into the digital public space uh, at some future point. There are major challenges which the digital public space sort of project needs to tackle and one is providing a channel where information can be shared freely for non-commercial use uh, and for scholarly use um, so it can provide that without um, having a detrimental ef effect on rights owners uh, and, and commercial um, suppliers so we need to find the right balance between um, you know supporting research and and also supporting um, industry the creative industries and so on. So Richard Ramft of the British Library has a long to-do list there perhaps a bit too long for the British Library to tackle by themselves Richard mentioned some work with the BBC, who, as you may remember from our programme last year, also have a fantastic archive undergoing digitisation. We've come right up to date now. We're in the archive server room 
We're standing in front of a fairly standard-looking server setup. lots of very pretty flashing lights. Tell us about the D3 side of the project. Uh, the D3 tapes, um, I've been showing signs of distress, so we've decided that because of that and because Panasonic, the manufacturer, no longer support this particular format, that we needed to ingest them to uncompressed files, and that's what's going on with this system here. This is an eight-channel ingest. Um, These boxes were developed back in 2005 by BBC Research and Development. We cope with over 3,000 programmes a month. Um, They are ingested here to uncompressed file, wrapped with a container called MXF, which we can place metadata inside, which describes what the programme is, the carrier format that it originated from, how long it is. And then the system here, when when it has enough programmes in its cache it will dump those to LTO3 tape. As the BBC are aiming to unlock their archive for the benefit of the licence fee payer, it makes sense for these public institutions to come together to crack this tough nut. And so they have done, under a project guided by Tony Aggie, a co-creator of the iPlayer, and Bill Thompson, who looks after partnerships within the BBC's archive development team. Bill came into The Guardian to explain how the BBC could be a central part of a digital public space which makes archives and collections publicly accessible. While you're listening to this interview, it may help get the idea clear in your head by referring to Bill's diagram of how the digital public space could be structured. The artwork should appear on your iPod or iPhone screen with a small tap, or you can see the illustration on our pages at guardian.co.uk slash techweekly. So after going through his schematics for the project, I asked Bill how the BBC could help support what is potentially a very expensive project. The actual digitising stuff and putting it online can be very expensive, but that's not really what we're talking about here particularly. What we're talking about here is providing a framework, a structure, a model, an architecture for how you spend the money you have available. What you do is you have an overall goal to build this thing we're calling the digital public space... You have a technical approach around digitization standards and the models you use and what your archivists do and what your information scientists and librarians do. And then you have some data models in the middle and a whole set of applications, user interfaces, tools and services, each of which is built for a particular purpose, but they add up to something more. If we're visualising this network that enables all this content to be easily accessible and um indexable in in the same way. How would you describe it? I was asked within the BBC to think, what can the BBC do with its archive? So I came in two years ago working with Tony Aggie in the archive development team to develop the archive. And so we took the approach right from the beginning that since the BBC wants to work in partnership around television production, around all the other aspects of it, it should be working in partnership with other appropriate organisations around these questions... And so we started talking to everyone, literally, Arts Council England, Royal Opera House, British Library, British Museum, Victoria and Albert, the National Archives, and the digital public space model came from those conversations. And just as the World Wide Web, when you boil it down, is actually just two things. It's the document that specifies the hypertext markup language, and it's the document that specifies the hypertext transport protocol. You have those two things, and from that you build the web. So the core of the digital public space is actually very simple. It's that we need an overarching data model that allows us effectively to navigate from one organization's collection to another organization's collection. If we have that data model in the middle, 
then underneath you have stores for the digitised assets of types appropriate to each organisation and as big as they want it to be and on whatever terms they want to make them available so they can licence them commercially or non-commercially. And on top of that, you have applications and tools and services that are built by the institutions themselves from assets that are in all of the different organisations. All of these things fit together in a world of open linked data. You build that. Once that's there, you can start to feed the content through it You can let people see pictures, read books, watch old TV programmes, and you can start to build services for whatever devices you might have. So we could see it as as almost like building a new public library building as all of these interesting organisations putting stuff inside that. And when when a, a member of the public enters this new, exciting library space, they'll have more material accessible than than they've ever had before that's that's a nice way of thinking about it but there's one little nuance to that which is that the stuff's not in the library you have the best catalog ever and when you want something there's an instant delivery service now those organizations that want to keep their material in the library can do so those that want to keep it to themselves because they're worried about rights issues or whatever can keep it to themselves and only make it available when they're asked for it to people they sure will look after it. Is this going back to the BBC's roots as being a technological powerhouse? I'd hope so. I mean, the BBC is an engineering organisation as much as a media organisation. It managed to make radio happen. It managed to make television happen. It's done really exciting things with the web and online over the last decade. So this is continuing in that tradition. We're still actually quite a small way along the process of digitising the past properly, making it available, and also figuring out how the things we make today whether they are television programmes or radio programmes or books or recorded music, how they fit into this digital space. And what's the distinction here between commercial use and public sector? My interest is in the public value. So from within the BBC and also just personally, I think that we would all benefit if we had easier, broader access to digitised cultural assets. I think it is a good thing. So the priority for this project is making public service or public sector content available for non-commercial use? The public value and the commercial aspects sit together. I'm less interested in the commercial aspects because of my position within the BBC, but I'm also acutely aware they have to be there and they have to be simple and straightforward. So what we're talking to partners around is a framework which makes navigation and finding stuff as easy as possible by sharing catalogue information, by sharing metadata, but leaves access to the underlying asset under the control of whatever institution so they can apply whatever licence in terms they think appropriate. The system as a whole is agnostic about that, and so it will depend on which organisations choose to work with us and what the organisations delivering the tools and services at the end want to get out of it, how that goes in future. But it doesn't mean the the public sector funding a very large project that the commercial sector can then make money out of. It's actually about, it's a way that the public sector would be able to to generate money for themselves? Quite possibly, but that's, again, that's not something which I'm trying to do. If you think about how much the World Wide Web has cost over the last 20 years, it's in the hundreds of billions of dollars, I would imagine. But each organisation has paid what it thinks appropriate. 
So I pay £15 a month for my ByteMark virtual Linux server, and that hosts half a dozen websites for me. That's my investment in the World Wide Web. Other organisations pay slightly more. For each organisation, it's its choice. You have a technical framework, you have an architecture, you have a model. They sign up to the model, they sign up to the standards, and then they decide what is appropriate for them. Are we talking about a visible product that's, that, that consumers, consumers, licence fee payers, are going to be able to see in the same way that iPlayer has become a brand? Or is this something that will purely be a kind of technical infrastructure that runs backstage behind the BBC? It's hard to say what it will turn into. Um, certainly in my mind, I've seen it as being infrastructure, that it's, it's a principle, it's the way that things are done. And then you build different products and services on top of that, and they have their own audiences, their own brands, you know, and, and they work in their own way. And the fact they're built around this approach isn't something that people have to be aware of. It's like you know, very few people know whether you know, websites they're visiting are HTML5 or Flash because they don't care. It's only when they stop working that they care. And, and similarly, you know, it shouldn't really matter to the people at the end that this is the way it's, been, it's working. I know I'm saying should here because none of this stuff has been built yet and it won't be up to the BBC to build it. The BBC will have its own products and services and I hope they'll be built around this approach. But other organisations will make their own choices when the time comes, just as organisations make their own choices now about what programming languages to use or what um, architectures to use, what development methods to use. Bill Thompson from the BBC's Archive Development Project The ideas for a digital public space link into a similar project across the whole of the continent run by Europeana. The EU-funded project, which is run out of the National Library of the Netherlands, aims to let people explore the digital resources of Europe's museums, libraries and archives. So what could the UK's digital public space project learn from Europeana? We asked Jill Cousins, the director, how Europeana came about. Europeana.eu is a site that aims to connect society through its culture and its sort of loftiest aim. What it actually does is bring together the content of the archives, museums, libraries and audiovisual collections across Europe. And we've now got 19.4 million items accessible across all 27 countries of the EU. And the aim is really that you can search uh, through one search um, in order to get to that content. It came together actually because of a project that we had done with the European Commission called the European Library, which was to bring together the content of the National Libraries of Europe. And the Commission originally funded that project and then the libraries themselves uh, have actually made it sustainable. And they figured that if we could do it for libraries, we must be able to do it for archives, museums and audiovisual collections as well. So they funded us for a what was a 15-month project to create a pilot. We've since moved on. Sort of, we're no longer really, well, we're no longer a project. We are actually um, an operational service under a Dutch foundation called the Europeana Foundation.
If you do a, a search on Mozart, you can get um, a painting of him playing the piano when he was a child, but you can also get pictures of the pianos or the violins that he, he played on. Letters that he wrote to his father in the archives. Um, they, they come from the Austrian archives, the pictures from the Musée de d'Orsay. Then on top of that, videos of people playing Mozart. So for instance, there is a video from the Institut National Audiovisuel in, in Paris that uh, shows Daniel Barenboim playing Mozart in celebration of the fall of the wall, and it was an extra concert during 1989. So I think the power lies in the ability to pull all these resources from all of these different cultural heritage institutions across Europe. You get serendipity, but you also get a huge richness around a, a subject area. The technology behind Europeana, well, it's open source. Um, it's all available on uh, GitHub. It's based on the idea of harvesting um, and indexing the metadata that describes the objects that we hold in our museums, libraries, archives, um, etc. It's uh, all Java. It's a very thin um, application uh, layer. Um, we've had a few instances of other portals taking the software and using it to start up their own uh, software. There's an interesting one um, in Sweden where that's happened. It's also making use of things like the semantic web and linked open data. So we've done an awful lot of work in that kind of area as well. We're fairly certain that we are now funded through to 2021. Not for an awful lot of money. Um, it's for five million a year to keep the whole of the central hosting facility and a set of people going. So we have issued a strategic uh, plan, which takes us from 2011 to 2015. We continue to aggregate the material and make it interoperable. We want to be able to distribute that material, so we are setting up APIs. We're very interested in anybody who wants to take an API. Uh, we have a lot of user engagement exercises. One of those is an exercise in user-generated content uh, collection. So we've done an extension of the Great War Archive project, uh, which was run by Oxford University into Germany. In eight days, we digitized 25,000 um, items, and they are all online, and they're stuff that people had in their attics. I think I imagine it to be, you don't have to go to it, it comes to you. So you will be standing outside the V&A and you think, okay, what's in here that I might be interested in? And the data to tell you that is supplied by uh, Europeana, but it could be on a mobile application for what's in this museum. So I, I see it very much as, a, as an underlying facilitating force for the digital public space. You sort of hope that there is a better understanding of other people's culture and more willingness to see that there is a different way of looking at things, that, that there is a different history uh, behind these things. And if we can then help them make the connections through to the deeper side, if you like, of cultural history, then I think we'll have done something with more of a useful legacy. 
Can you paint us a picture of um, what the the world might be like um, inside the British Library's archive for, say, a school child in, in ten years' time, assuming that all the pieces of these um, very ambitious projects fall into place? How, how would they experience the British Library's archive? I hope they'll experience it in the way they want. I mean, traditionally, libraries like us have had, um, you know, catalogues with cataloguing rules and skills and so on, where the experts in the, in the library have described the materials. Increasingly, in a digital public space, we'd, we'd want to see crowdsourcing of data. So people describe things in the way they want. And they'll find links that we can't imagine at the moment between, uh, I don't know, something, some physical object in the Royal Opera House uh, and some digital web space that the, li- that the British Library has archived in the year, you know, 2011. Um, we can't imagine those, and we want those to be driven by, by the public. That's what it's for. In 10 years' time, we want to be in a position where you can find all of this stuff, you can navigate seamlessly through everyone's collections, and you can look at and play with and use whatever you're given permission to look at and play with and use, and it should be a lot. Is is 10 years the timescale we're looking at? And if you have already built something, what have you built and how does that fit with the, the, the work that we've already talked about on this show with the BBC's own digital archive? Well, well, 10 years is quite a nice time frame for the BBC because it's the centenary, you see. So the, the British Broadcasting Company, founded 1922, it's a good time frame. At the recent opening of uh, Perivale, the, the BBC's archive centre, new uh, archive centre, Mark Thompson, the Director General, said he wanted to see everything digitised by 2022. And everything is not just all the holdings of radio and television programmes, it's the 10 kilometres of documents at Caversham, it's the 6 million photographs, it's... it's everything and there's no point digitizing it if you can't let people see it and use it and engage with it so in my mind i think if we haven't done that for the bbc by 2022 we will have failed ideally we do it faster but also you've got things like the british library's 2020 vision which says you know we need screen-based access to all of our material because that's what scholars expect you've got the bfi's five-year plan for digitizing it's people are thinking in those sort of time frames, and it seems to me a sensible one. And what have you already built? What we've built so far is a prototype data model. So we've got what could best be described as a proof of concept. We've worked with a number of organisations who've given us chunks of data, not the actual underlying assets, but the data, and we've written an aggregator, it's called. So a piece of software that will take these individual databases and turns them into good RDF so good linked data stuff, that can make them available to a user interface. And then we've commissioned three separate user interfaces, one's very simple search, one's slightly more sophisticated, one's a bit shiny and bells and whistles, just to show the sorts of things that might be possible, to show how you can navigate between these apparently very disparate collections in a seamless way around themes like people and places and events and things. And, And I think... I'm very pleased at the progress we've made because it allows us to go to other organisations and say, look, this sort of thing is possible, it's technically feasible. Coming in on this is a matter of thinking about your data model, it's a matter of sort of talking to your techie people about the next thing they're building and say, well, why don't you build it around this sort of architecture and this sort of principles? It's not about signing big checks now and committing to a large build. Tell us how many cheques have been signed so far, though, Bill. How much has this cost? It's cost a very modest amount of money so far. Which I mean, is how much? And I can't say exactly, I'm afraid. And how big's the team working on it? 
So the archive development team is eight or nine plus or minus. It varies from time to time. So we're a very small team within the BBC. We've had three people working on the prototype projects over the summer. Why does the archive matter to you, Bill? Well, the BBC archive in particular matters to me because this organisation has been going for 90 years. It has recorded our past and it's such a fantastic and broad record. So, so it just fascinates me. But also because my past is in there as well. Um, I remember some years ago watching the opening scenes of Our Friends in the North, the television drama, and it's set in Newcastle in 1964, and there's a scene with kids walking down the street, and one of them could have been me, because I was born in Newcastle in 1960. Now, somewhere in the BBC archive, there's a bit of news footage of a man in a raincoat standing with a camera, I'm sure of this, and he's talking about a fire jarrow in Newcastle, in that area. And my mum's walking behind him with me in the pram. I'm sure there's something like that there. There is a moment, there's five seconds in that archive that is my past. And if I could find it, it would transform my life. It would be wonderful. So in order for me to get that five seconds, and for you to get your five seconds, we need to digitise everything. We need to catalogue it all. We need to tag it with place and time and date. And we need to give you access to it. So the reason I'm doing this is so we can each get our five seconds. At its heart, this project is about making the most of our very best public institutions, of culturally valuable and historically important material that until now has been sitting on dusty shelves and in locked cupboards. By 2022, if Bill Thompson and Tony Aggie's ambitious plan succeeds, the BBC could reassert its rightful place at the heart of British contemporary life, and remind the world it is still the home of pioneering engineering and technology. Thanks for listening to this very special edition of Tech Weekly. Alex will be back next week. I'm Jemima Kish, and the programme was produced by Scott Corley. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.